0: As we're moving through the first half of chapter 4, we're taking four weeks to do so, and, and we've kind of designed it or, or put it in the category of a series which we've called Basic Church. And even, even that idea should be impressing upon you this morning, that after Paul lays out this big and deep and kind of profound, and you could live the rest of your life in chapters 1 through 3, and he finally gets to his therefore, the first thing he wants to talk about is the church. He doesn't say, therefore, love your neighbors. He doesn't say, therefore, go out and evangelize the whole world. He lays this foundation, and he says, therefore, this is the type of community you should be. Okay. And it's because all those other things flow out of this thing. It's because God hasn't called us as individuals to an individual relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, but into a new creation, a new humanity, a new community, a new body of which Jesus is head. And so he begins, before he gets to all the other things, saying, let's talk about how it is that the church works. Let's talk about how it is that this community functions. Let's go over the basics, okay? And so we saw last week that there is a a virtue side to this, that there are characteristics and traits that Paul calls us to cultivate. And again, they're not just good. They are social virtues. Their whole reason for being is to cultivate a type of community. In the same way, here he gets into the idea of unity, which is built into the word community. Without it, you don't have anything in common. Community emphatically says there is an inside and an outside and all of us are in. Community emphatically says there's a commonality and that commonality ties us together and in some way makes us one. Okay. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as Paul does so, he doesn't just say, be one. He doesn't just say, all right, now come together. He says, you are already one. So maintain that. And that's what we saw last week. And so uh, let's pick up here in um, verse 3. Drawing again from the virtues of last week, but rolling into where Paul is going, he says in Ephesians chapter four that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Join me in prayer. God, I'm reminded of a song that we have often sung in this church, which records this prayer. Make us one as you are one, Holy Father, Spirit, and Son. And that prayer is not just the prayer of a song, it's the prayer that Jesus prayed, even for us, for all who would one day know him, Father, he said, that they should be one as we are one. And so, God, we pray that as we reflect on your word this morning, that you would help us to envision and understand and embrace the unity of the body of Christ. We thank you for one another. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for every stated reality that follows the word one in our passage this morning that we share in common. We pray that you'd help us this morning by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. There was a time where calls for unity in just the broad societal sense were super common. There was a time where there was a sense that every conflict, there was just something wrong with. And so there were, you know, why can't we just get along? Or there were proclamations of of peace or these types of things. It's been strangely silent on that front the last few years. We've become content with camps and divisions. And we no longer see it as splitting between the splitting of one thing. But two, diametrically opposed things. I, I don't remember a time in my life where us and them rhetoric was winning so strongly. But there is a benefit to that. There is a value to that, which is to recognize that suddenly we realize that the way that we've talked about unity and community and fellowship doesn't work that the idea that we can be completely different people in completely different places with completely different views who behave completely different ways and yet can be in unity and in fellowship and, and go the same directions and make the same decisions, we have been broken of that naivety. We now go, actually, this is not just hard, but there is something to be said for boundaries. Now again... That is not to sanctify or baptize all of the divisions in our world or justify either side. But I do think we have this sense that there is something about unity that requires something in common. Okay. Think of it this way. Think of a quilt. What is it that divides the square of a quilt from another quilt? One of the things is the stitching. Right? If you want to trace the boundaries of a square, you have a very easy way to find it because you can just find the way that that's been stitched. That's the border. Okay. But there's another thing that makes a quilt square a quilt, which is that it's all from the same cloth. Right? So there's a red square and a plaid square. Right? And there's a square here. Right. And, and it's not just that they are bounded but that they have this commonality woven through it. Okay. That's, that's the way that unity works. And again, there was a time where we were very against outsider language, where we were very against talking as if anyone was excluded. But now we're in a place where we exclude ourselves from things very quickly so we know that we're not one of them, right? The, the, the way that we talk about these things has changed significantly in the last few years. And that brings the danger of our time which is that we very easily in our day and age unite against. We define ourselves by what we're not. We gather up, rank and file as an army who needs to defeat. Right. That is the way that we find community. But that's a nasty process, and it's like taking a chisel to humanity and just carving off the sides. That's not what we see in this passage what we see is a very clear inside. In fact, there are requirements for unity to take place in the way that Paul is talking about. But they are defined by the fabric of the quilt square and not the con- contrast with the square next door. Okay? And so notice again in verse 3, Paul called us last week to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And again, I want to hit just the two points on that that we saw last week. The first is in that word maintain, okay? He doesn't say become one. He says stay one. He doesn't say you need to make a community. He says God made a community and you're a part of it, so act like it, okay? Maintain, but also there's that word eager, and that's where the virtue comes in. That means having an orientation towards maintaining that unity. It means being proactive in preserving that unity. It means wanting it, right? Eager even has that idea of desire built into it, okay? But energies and desires and even an attitude is not enough for unity. We need to constantly review what it is that makes us one, And so what he does next is he gives pretty close to a creedal statement. Here is what we believe. In fact, many scholars believe that Paul didn't write this ad hoc as he was writing to the Ephesians, but that he's heavily borrowing from regular traditions of the church at large in the first century. But if you're familiar with, for example, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. That's not what this is. None of these statements start with, I believe, and there's a cadence, a very clear one to these statements with that word one, right? And so this isn't just statements about who God is, God is one, or what the faith is, the faith is one. It's a single quilt square creed. He's saying, here are all the things that make us one. They're all one because we all have one Lord, one faith. One baptism, okay? And so it's not just, here are the things that we must believe. It would be going too far to say that what we have this morning is a mere Christianity doctrinal statement that determines inside and out. It implies that, and we'll see it even mentions that, but what he wants to emphasize, it's impossible to miss, isn't it? Look at what he says again in verse four. There is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times here he says one, and he points to different pieces of what God has done for you as an individual in Jesus Christ and says that is exactly the same as the believer sitting next to you. And it's the exactly the same as the believer in another city, in another country, in another time. And if you were to take any of these and make it two, you would have justification for saying we have two things and not one thing. Okay, you would have a way to divide in half, and then what we'd have is say, hey, we're all of one blanket, but we're each a different square of the quilt because there are, uh, you know, red Christians and blue Christians because there are right uh, ones who came to Christianity this way and ones who came to the Christianity this way. Now, that is not to disregard the diversity that we find or even the, um, the division that we find in the church. This idea here, again, can't be reduced down to why can't we all just get along? Built into this is that there's things that matter for unity. But let's look at what they are. So look at the first one. There is one body. Now, this is building on what Paul has said in the first half of Ephesians when he says that God has made us all one body. Okay? And he's going to go on and he's going to use this metaphor of your physical body to say that one body, many parts, fingers and toes, hearts and kidneys, right? This is the idea, but they make one body, And it's interesting, actually, to reflect on the oneness of your body. And Paul does it for us in certain places. He says, if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, right? Because there's a nervous system that they share in common. And so you can't just say, well, the finger is not a part of the body, so I don't really care what happens to it. You do. You do. And you prove it every time you pull away from a hot stove, okay? There's a oneness to the body. Now, that oneness is in diversity. A stomach is not a kidney. But what makes them one is that they work together for the whole, right? And so here he says, there is one body, okay? And again, this is something that God has done. He has made the two one. And here we get into kind of the the levels of metaphor, of the New Testament. And I'll use the word church as an example. The word church in the New Testament sometimes refers to a group of believers in a particular location who gather at a particular, time, uh, particular time. Greet the church that meets in your house. Other times, Paul speaks in broad ways like he does in Ephesians and refers to the church. We could call it the church universal. And so in the same way, it is appropriate for us to talk about the body of Christ as in here at Calvary. And it's also appropriate to talk about the universal body of Christ that has all of these things in common, even though we live in a different place, speak a different language, have different secondary views, go about our practices in different ways, use different instruments in worship. All of those differences may make us one body here but still part of this body here, okay? But the emphasis here is that we have been bound together as one thing. Let me just talk about common language. When we talk about joining a church, that word is inescapable. And I actually don't really have a problem with the idea of becoming part of a church because that's a thing, you move across the country, you have to find a body of believers. You see Paul do it all the time. He pulls into a town and he says, are there any Christians here? Right? He asks that question and you should too. But it does make us think of joining a church like joining a gym. And so the way that we go about it is we weigh the cost of membership and the benefits, and how attractive or ugly the other participants are, right? These are the things that go into, and there is some danger in taking that idea too far. If you approach the church and you join it as a consumer with benefits for you, you fall short of this idea of one body. Okay. Let me give you another example. Imagine that you have an organ transplant. An organ thinking, well, I'm going to join this body means more than just I'm going to pay the membership dues, then I'm just going to make this my place. It means my parts are now going to serve the whole parts. And I'm going to be dependent upon the whole body, right? The language is a tricky thing. We call it semantic range. The word join doesn't mean all these things at once, but it's blurry which one we mean when we say something. It's like when I say the word grill. You don't know if I'm talking about a barbecue, giving you the first degree, you getting up in my face, right? Language has flexibility to it. But when he says here there is one body, the clear emphasis is on the fact that you have been joined, like an organ transplant, to a body. And that now the blood of the body throws, flows through your veins. And that now the needs of the body are your needs. One of the words that's implied by this idea of one body is solidarity. Okay. The needs of the body are my needs. My needs become the needs of the body. The goal and the purpose and the participation, it's all involved in this word. But let's look at the next one. He says, and one spirit now this could be of particular emphasis to the people he's writing to in Ephesus because Ephesus was one of the centers of the ancient world in terms of spiritual practices both of the religious like recognized religious sense so you have the temple of Diana or Artemis in Ephesus but you also had an incredible amount of occult things of amulets and incantations and familiars, right, spirits who become your friends and help you do things. The literature from Ephesus on this stuff is extensive. It's everywhere, and so it's very possible that those who are sitting in the pews, if you will, of Ephesians or Ephesus Community Church, it's very possible that when they hear one spirit, they're having to remind, oh right, we are talking about the spirit of God here being at work and it's no longer, well, you know, I see this psychic and I call on this deity and, right, there's, there's a oneness here that is unifying. But also there's a deeper sense where the idea here is one of energizing and empowering. Okay. When Paul says here that we have one spirit, it's recognizing the fact that God is actively and personally working in each and every one of us okay which is why Paul in writing to the Corinthians says in one place do you not know that your body is the temple of the living God referring to a single one of you and in another place he says do you not know that you the body speaking to all of you are the temple of the living God Right, He's drawing from this picture of God taking residence in us through the Holy Spirit and recognizing that that means we're all part of the same temple. It means that we're all part of the same building, that we're all filled with the same presence of God. Okay? And so the idea of one spirit is unifying here because that commonality is not just something you subscribe to. It's an inherent part of your nature that you have in common. This is why the church in Jerusalem, after having a very significant debate about how to include or exclude non-Jewish Christians in Acts chapter 15, writes to all of their Gentile brothers and sisters, many of whom they've never met, and they say this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, okay, there's a unanimity In God's will, when the spirit is at work, again, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree. And it doesn't mean that it's always clear. But when there is unity, we can recognize that the same spirit who speaks to my heart speaks to your heart. And we can recognize the same spirit whose agenda is to make you more like Jesus is doing the same thing in me. And the same spirit who's gifted you for the body has gifted me for the body. Right, And the same spirit that has sealed you as belonging to Christ has sealed you. And the same spirit who cries in you, Abba, Father, is also calling out in my heart. There is an actual, tangible reality to what Paul says here when he says one spirit. An experiential epiphany of we have this in common and it's a deep commonality. It's not just that we both like the same restaurant. right? It's not just that we both played hockey in high school. It is, it is almost genetic. You know what I mean? It's like finding out that you share in common a bloodline. It's something deeper than that. And so he says, there's one spirit. And then he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Okay. Hope is future oriented, right? The author of Hebrews reminds us of this. He says, well, you don't hope for things that you see. You don't say, boy, I hope that I get, you know, a red fire truck for my fifth birthday when you're opening it. It's too late for that. Now you have it. So it's no longer hope. And so what he's saying here is we all share in common a similar destiny, a similar point on the horizon that we're moving towards, a similar longing and desire. We all pray, come Lord Jesus, right? Which is a hope prayer. It's a looking forward prayer. But think of how that cultivates unity and how unity requires it, okay? When you decide to travel somewhere, whether you take a bus or a car, if you travel with other people, why does that work? Because you're going to the same place. Now, some of you are more friendly and accommodating than I am, so maybe you're going to drop them off along the way, but I think the metaphor stands. In fact, it says in the Old Testament, how can two walk together unless they agree? Okay? And this is where we find the thresholds of our community and unity. Right? It's when there's real choices. And as we make those choices, there's a parting of ways. Because I'm going this way, and you're going that way. Because I've chose to enforce or endorse this, and you've chose... Right? These are the things that divide us. And again... I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm saying that you can do that poorly and for the wrong reasons, and you can definitely do it in a way that just denies the dignity of other people. However, unity and moving towards the same destination have to go together. Here's the point. The Bible says that one day we will all be gathered around Jesus Christ in worship. The Bible says that one day we will all be united as a community in the new heavens and the new earth living our lives together for all eternity with God right at the center. You may take some detours. You may even think there's been a dividing of ways but the destination doesn't change. Okay. We're going to the same place. We're moving in the same direction. Our deepest desires, ambitions, and dreams all culminate in the same place. Now, we don't always recognize this because we tend to see the first fruits of our desires and not recognize their culmination. And so, you guys have different things that matter to you here and now on this earth and in this city, but it is amazing when you've become a believer in Jesus Christ and you're filled with his spirit, it's amazing how you can trace all those things out to what God will ultimately do. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, if you become a city planner and you invest all of your time into dreaming of the perfect human city, guess what? There is one and it's coming. And he says, if you become a a prosecuting lawyer, to uproot injustice in this world so that people are delivered from their oppressors, guess what? That's coming and it will happen, right? And so what we have in our hearts so often is a reflection, but not just a reflection of ourselves, a reflection of God and a reflection of the future of where God is headed. And so we may have different emphases, but we're all going to graduate with the same degree. Okay. One hope, all trying to get to the same place, And then he continues, and he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Now, he's already mentioned the Spirit, and he will mention the Father. And here, when he says one Lord, it's pretty clear that he means Jesus. And I don't think it's surprising that for a group of Christians to say, what do you have in common? The first answer is Christ, right? It's where we get our name from. But it is interesting here, he doesn't just say one Jesus, or even one savior. He'll touch on some of those ideas in other places. Here he says, one Lord. Okay. Now, the recognition here for Lord has a couple of different components. One way we could think about it is that uh, we all share the same master. We're all serving the same king. Okay. Another way to think of it would be in terms of obedience. And I don't think this is really escapable. Jesus questions those who call him Lord and do not do the things that he says. So when Jesus says, I am your Lord, he means inherently, therefore obey me. And so when it says here, one Lord, the recognition is that we've all unified, not just behind what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, but we have come under the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Lord. We have come under the one who has told us what to do and we are aspiring together to do the same thing. Oh my gosh, can you imagine the unity the church at large would experience if they just did the things Jesus told them to? What if we just took the Sermon on the Mount and we made it all our personal agenda? Do you know why we would have so much in common? Because there's no one else we'd have anything in common with anymore, right? There is a unifying reality of right and wrong. And again, this is what we divide over, isn't it? Of different values, of different pictures of right. When we say one Lord, it means that each and every one of us, apart from our preferences apart from our own ability to think independently, apart from the cultural influences around us or who our neighbor is, the final dividing line of our decisions and our actions is are we being obedient to Jesus Christ? Now, one of the things that I love about the potential unity of this statement, because it's divisive. It's a divisive to say to be one of us, you have to make Jesus your Lord is divisive. You have other Lords? No, they don't count right? It's divisive. But the potential for unity here is profound, because if Jesus really is who he said he was, it's not just we see him as Lord, and it's not just Lord of the church. It is Lord over all. There is enough room in this idea for every living, breathing human being But we should also recognize again that oftentimes division in the church is through the threatening of allegiance to other lords. I do not think we can escape this idea. If something becomes more determinant and defining of your decision making, of your allegiance than Jesus, then suddenly we have quilt panels within the quilt panel. again Jesus is big on this he says if you have to choose between obeying your parents and obeying me the line's right there he says if you have to choose between obeying the authorities and obeying me the line is right there okay and so we could take actually every item on this list and recognize the threats to unity and recognize how they play out in our life but that one i thought was unavoidable and inescapable this morning one Lord means that we're all seeking to obey the same master then he says one faith now this one is super interesting because again the word faith has has different ways of talking about it and so we can say I have faith and we can talk about the faith of my faith one says I believe and the other says here's what I believe And Paul uses this word in both ways in the New Testament. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's something for you to do. You have to believe. But he also says, I've passed on to you the faith. And he doesn't mean there, I've passed on to you the power of believing or something like that. He means the content of our belief. And clearly here when he says one faith, that's what he means. And so again... There is a doctrinal necessity to unity. What we have in common is that we believe the same things are true. Now, to be clear here, when Paul says one faith, that doesn't mean that we all hold exactly the same views on every implication and application. And it doesn't mean that we all read the Bibles exactly the same way. But the core like I said earlier, that Apostles' Creed reality, start playing with that and you start cultivating division. Because the question is not at that point are we different? The question is are we one? Okay. One faith. There has been a tendency and again, I don't hear this anymore because dogma has become such a significant part of everybody's life and we're dogmatic about it. But there's been a tendency for a long time to say, doctrine doesn't really matter. Don't be dogmatic. Can't we just recognize the um, sincerity of people's belief, but they can believe in different things. If we are talking about dignity and the requirement of us to love and treat people a certain way, yes. The answer is unequivocally yes. People don't have to speak out of their mouths any idea or hold any thought in their brain to be part of God's created world deserving of love, period. But to be one, there has to be a common doctrine. We have to agree on those things. And again, this goes against the grain of sometimes how we talk about church and definitely who we are as Americans at this day and age. We have become eclectic. We take this, and a little bit of this, and we mold this together, and we carve this off. If Jesus is Lord, and if salvation is possible, then you cannot do the same with Christianity. And I'll be frank here. You cannot be a Christian Buddhist. And you cannot be a 80% Christian. And you, you cannot eclectically deal with these things, which means that in the New Testament, we see an emphatic need to protect the faith, to protect the traditions, to secure the deposit that was handed down. We see the danger that is repeated way more than we would like to hear as moderns of heresy. It's throughout the New Testament. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false prophets. Okay. And the reason is because these aren't just ideas And if we believe them, they do things. They're realities. And if they're not real, then we live in a very different world. Okay. And so there is a need here for doctrinal agreement for unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now again, it's so funny how this list, it just makes us think, but... My friend was baptized by a sprinkling of water. And my other friend was baptized as a baby. And this friend was baptized in a river, right? And we have all of these different things. What does it mean when it says one baptism? Clearly, the idea here is one entry point. And again, we don't always get this. Sometimes, if you've grown up around Christianity, we talk about baptism as a public expression of our faith an external symbol of an internal change that we've identified with Christ and we were buried with him and have been resurrected with him and now we walk in newness of life. And that's absolutely true, but it can't be the sole or core part because remember that the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized in the wilderness. No audience. The Philippian jailer in the middle of the night in his proverbial bathtub. Okay, But baptism clearly entails an entrance into the community known as a church, as the church, okay? In fact, in the first few centuries, baptism was the transition to church membership. And you could be an attender of a church, you could be a a learner of Jesus, you could be on your path, but you weren't a full card-carrying member of the church until you were baptized, And it's clear that that's what Paul means here. What he's pointing out, again, is unique to other communities, clubs, and organizations. We all came through the same door. Let me give you an illustration. Paul, in the book of Acts, gets himself in a pickle with the law, and they unfortunately assume that he's just some backwater Jew, and so they do not ask if he's a Roman citizen. And they scourge him, they whip him, which is illegal apart from a trial. Citizens have rights. And afterwards, Paul effectively says, boy, that was kind of strange. Do you normally scourge Roman citizens? And they all kind of freak out. And one of the guards comes forward, and, and he's, a, he's a Roman centurion, and he, he could become a citizen, but through purchase. And so he says, I bought my citizenship with a great price. And Paul says, I'm natural born. And the centurion goes, oh, shoot, right? He recognizes that that differing entrance point matters. And we see this all the time, right? Some of you work so hard to get into college, and other people know the dean, right? Sometimes there are levels of membership, and so there's VIP status, and they get to go behind the red rope, right? Why? Because they enter in a different way. They enter on different criteria and with different standards and these types of things. And we could make the mistake of thinking it's the same in the church. We could think that it's like Paul and somebody could say, I became a convert out of nowhere. And another says, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. The only way for all citizens of the kingdom is natural birth, but natural second birth. John chapter 3, right? You must be born again. Okay? Nobody enters the church Through the birth canal of their mother, nobody, but only through, and this is not my analogy because I know it's a weird one, it's an early church one, but only through the birth canal of baptism, okay? So the point is here that each and every person in our church came here not because they're a wasp, right? Right? Not because they, uh, you know, have a son of a pre- or are a son of a preacher or, or back and forth. Not because they are born in the right place. Not because they are an American and Christianity, again, things we can't say anymore, but is just as American as apple pie. It, none of these things. Each and every one has to come recognizing themselves as sinners in need of a savior. Each and one has to say, my only entrance into the presence of God is through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. Each and everyone has to represent themselves as in need of a spiritual bath, which is what baptism represents, right? A cleansing. And each one has to identify as now being a part of Christ and therefore a part of his body. Again, let me say it, there is no second class citizenship in the kingdom of God. None. It is the most egalitarian of all communities. And that doesn't mean that there aren't different roles or different gifts or different offices. And let me remind you, it's not democratic. It is a benevolent dictatorship. We already saw that. One Lord. Okay. But the rights of the citizen are universal. And the standing of the citizens are equal. And the responsibility of the citizens are also equal. One baptism means that we cannot make distinctions between Jew and Gentile, or male and female, or slave and free, right? Because we have all, Paul says, been baptized into Christ. And so your status outside of Christianity doesn't translate. You can't just bring over your, you, you know, your frequent flyer miles and get into the the executive suite. It doesn't work that way. And actually, there's something really profound about this because have you seen now as we've talked about these things the inclusivity and the exclusivity of Christianity? Right? It is, it is exclusive in that there's only one way in and it's required for all people. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All of that has to be. But not only is it... Um, unilaterally equalizing once you got, get in, but it's also invitational. And we'll come back to that. It's exclusive in the fact that it says there's only one way. It's inclusive that says that way is for all people. There is no barrier, no boundary. You're a sinner? Oh, that's actually a prerequisite. Come on in. Okay. Let's look at the next one here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then is his capstone here where he's been baking basically just two-word pairs, he makes an incredibly complex sentence, and he adds another word of emphasis, and it's the word all. Listen to it. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Okay, do you see how that's a capstone? He's been making these items, and then the last one, he inflates, and he hits hard so that we'd get it, and he adds the word all, and all is a unifying term, okay? Who in the class gets an apple for snack? All of you. We all have apples, okay? That's how it works. We're all part of the same square, right? It's it's another unifying word. If it said each, then it would potentially be unifying, but it can also be very different, as we'll see in just a minute. Even if it said every, every can be potentially dividing. Every one of you are different. Okay? And you can say all of you are different, so that was a bad illustration. Um, But there is something about all that is like taking a marker and drawing a circle. Do you see that? He says all of them. Okay? But notice what he says here. He says one God and Father of all. Now, God, I think, is, is pretty obvious, it's, it's a recognition here, but when he adds father, it adds another flavor, right? The idea here is not as the church of a body, but the church is a family, okay? And so think of all the unified pictures we've seen, the church is a temple, the church is a body, and now it's the church as a family, we share the same father, which is more than just say, sharing the same ancestral lineage, father, the head of the household, the one who loves and cares for us. What does this make us if we have one God and father? Brothers and sisters, right? It's familial in its emphasis here, okay? But notice this is the father of all, and it's possible here he just means the father of all of us, but clearly he's not the God of all of us exclusively, and there are other gods out there for other people. He's the God who created all things, who all will give an account to, Okay, and, and I would suggest, at least in potentiality, at least in the very heart of God, God's invitation is come and be my child. Okay. But if we're part of the same father or family and are loved by the same father, then we have this in common. But notice how he describes it, and this is so weird, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if I were to put on my theology cap for a second, we could talk for hours about how many nuances and strange pieces there is to that. Here, it it just comes out and says, the Father is in all of you, which is not a way we normally talk. The Spirit is in you. But the Spirit is God, and the amazing miracle of God is triune, is that there's a sense where, where the Spirit is, God is. And therefore, where the Spirit is, the Father is as well. And this is what Jesus said, right? If you invite us in, my Father and I will come into you, and we will dwell with you. But what I want to focus on is those prepositions. The father who is over all and through all and in all. Overall is not hard to get, right? It's the idea that if there are disputes in the family, there's only one court of appeal. it's Overall is a recognition that he is the head of our house, the leader of these things. Overall is a recognition that there are no uncles in the mix that we can appeal to separately, right? But look at the second one. Overall and through all. What does it mean that God is the Father who is through all? If we go back to my quilting metaphor, maybe this is a thread that's just pulled through the whole square, right, and ties it all together. But I don't think that's what he means. This is not a pantheistic statement, it's a recognition of the fact that when God is at work, he works through your brothers and sisters. It's a recognition of the fact that one of the ways that God speaks is through your brothers and sisters. It's a recognition in the fact that one of the ways that God provides is through your brothers and sisters. And that one pairs with the last one when it says, And in all, there is a recognition in the body of Christ that when we love one another, we inherently love the Father. Okay, and so... This is a recognition here that when we interact as a family, we do it in the name of Jesus. When we interact as a family, we do it filled with the love of God to those whom God loves. And we experience God's love through those he is filled with the love of God, right? It's comprehensive in all and through all and over all, is a recognition that you cannot really engage with the body without in some way engaging with God himself. Because it is God who fills, because it is God who empowers, because it is God who gifts. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. Notice in verse 7 the but. In contrast, he says, verse 7, but grace was given to each. Remember what I said about the word each? Each divides up. Each piece of the pie instead of the whole pie. But grace was given to each according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as Paul goes on here, what he's basically saying is that God has uniquely, by his spirit, given each of you a different gift. Okay? Or a spiritual talent. He's given you a gift. And if you read here in Ephesians 4, if you read in 1 Peter 4, if you read in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 12, 4, 4, if you look at those four places, you'll see places where types of gifts are listed. And they include things like teaching. And they include things like service. And they include miraculous things like words of knowledge and even healings. Okay? But the recognition is here that the body, like your body, has been given different roles and with those roles gets different abilities. And so you have an opposable thumb and that's good news, but it's a good thing that you don't have opposable knees, okay? There is a recognition not just that you play a different part, but that you've been uniquely and divinely equipped for that part, okay? And so this is a difference. It's a diversity, I would suggest to you that one of the amazing things about the unity of the body of Christ is that it's more a salad than a soup, okay? At least the soup that you throw in a blender. The way that we become one is not by becoming exactly the same. Diversity is baked into the model. Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. Men are still men. Women are still women, okay? Diversity of culture, of tribe, of tongue, all those differences aren't to be put aside. They're to be overcome. They're to be transcended. And in the same way, God has given to us each unique gifts, talents, and abilities. But for what purpose? For the sake of the community. Okay. In fact, the majority of the gifts that the New Testament names, you cannot do to yourself. You cannot teach yourself. You cannot serve yourself. Okay? The gifts require an audience. The only exception is tongues. And that's why Paul says it's kind of a secondary gift. It's still good, but it only edifies you. But he says, lean on, utilize, seek, pray for, ask for the gifts that serve the body. Okay? And so, really, this diversity here is a diversity towards unity. And let me remind you, the body needs all parts to function well. And you can think, I feel sometimes like the appendix. I'm part of the body, but I don't really know what I'm for. And I'm afraid at any time they're just going to excise me and I won't be needed anymore. Okay. But Paul says there is no one sitting in this room who you call part of your family, part of the body. You can say, I don't need you. I am going to say with honesty and frankness, we don't always believe that. We have people who we think, those folks I need, those ones over there, I don't even know. Or you think, those ones I need, but he has nothing to offer. Or we elevate gifts and we go, this gift is the most important, all these other ones don't really matter. It's a misunderstanding of how bodies work. Okay. Some gifts, as Paul points out, like some body parts are more prominent. You may have a really big nose. That doesn't make it more important, even if it's more visible, okay? But what does he say? He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So who is the one doling out the gifts? Who's the one who hops off the sleigh here and hands out separate packages? It's Jesus himself. You don't walk into gift mart and go, I think I'd like that one, okay? But notice when he roots this, He says, therefore, it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, again, so many things we could talk about here. He's clearly quoting. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from Psalm 68. And if you go back and you read that psalm, it's about God, the conqueror, who's going to have victory over his enemies, and that imagery is still here. But if you read it in your ESV Bible, it's not going to say that he gave gifts to men. It's going to say he received gifts from men. And I don't have time to talk about that this morning, okay? Okay. On top of that, notice what it says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? I don't know, what does it mean? What is it trying to say here? And I'm going to give you just a simple access point to that one, but we need to remember that the way Paul does something is sometimes related to what he's trying to do, but what's most important is that we get to what he's trying to do, and we'll do that for sure. But he quotes here, and he pictures Jesus as a divine conqueror who has won the war. Not uncommon language in the New Testament. Triumphed over his enemies in the cross, like it says in Colossians, okay? And then it says here that after that, he doled out gifts. Now, verse 9 again, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, okay? What is he trying to get at here? There's a couple of possible uh, 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 interpretations that are common in the church. One is that this lower regions of the earth is the equivalent of the ancient underworld. That basically when he triumphed over the enemies, he kicked in their door and said, I have won, okay? And so the recognition is here that maybe it's talking about the demonic realm, okay? Another possibility here is that it's talking about the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. So not the demonic realm, but the realm of dead. And now he says it's been finished, I am risen, therefore you are risen too, right? To all these people who had died before Jesus. Those are actually incredibly popular and consistent understandings all throughout church history. However, there are two newer ones that do seem to draw more from the text itself and not from tradition, You want to know why we've read it that way for so long? Because of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. However, the other two is that one, maybe this is talking about Pentecost, and it's saying the same Jesus who went up also came down in the Holy Spirit and the pouring out of the Spirit. Or, and I think this is more likely, Paul is recognizing wait, that psalm is about God, the divine victor. And he says, how could God ascend into heaven? unless the one who's in, in view here is the one who became a man, descended into even the lower regions of the earth, not under the mountains, but taking on the form of a servant, like it says in Philippians, and dying a death, even the death on the cross, right? There's a clear downward slope. And the recognition is here that, hey, Psalm 68 was talking about Jesus. I think that's the point he's trying to make. And so Jesus came, became a man, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death that you deserve, and now he's ascended to the right hand, and from that place of victory and power, he wants to empower the church. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew's gospel? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples. But do you remember the reminder he gives them? Don't go yet. Don't go until I send the promise of the Holy Spirit. I would suggest those elements together make sense of what Paul is saying here. But there's one last piece here, and this is what I want to draw your attention to. Look at what it says at the end there of verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay. Now, if you've been with us as we've studied through Ephesians, you know fill all things is major important language in in Ephesians. It ends chapter 1. It ends chapter two. It's the focal point of Paul's prayer in chapter three, and here it occurs again. And as I pointed out to you, the point is that God is transforming the world and making the world new through the work of Jesus Christ, and that that goal is one of expansion. That he didn't just set up a kingdom and put walls about it and ignore everything around it, but that he is taking ground, expanding boundaries. Okay? And that's because, as Paul told us in Ephesians 1, what God is doing is he's uniting all things in heaven and earth in Christ. Okay? So it's a unity statement again. But it is a unity of invitation. And not a passive one that says, hey, you can join the team if you want to. But an active one of going out and proclaiming the good news and inviting God's agenda is not just to have a kingdom, but for that kingdom to fill the heavens and earth. And so again, let me exhort you that when we talk about the unity of the body, when we talk about the importance of boundaries, when we talk about the reality of an inside, which always implies an outside, it is a push for gates and not walls. It is a push for invitation inside to those who are outside and not exclusion of those who are outside. But for that to happen We have to have walls. There has to be a defined inside that we're saying, come inside. Okay. But the goal, the goal is out there. The expansion is out there. The unity that we experience is for the benefit of and the impact of and an invitation to those who are out there. And so again, that tells us that the unity that we're talking about here Is potentially universal. And there will be those who reject it and refuse it. And God will still align their destinies and their reality around the reality of Jesus Christ. That's true. And it won't be the same. Everyone is a subject of Jesus. Not all will become citizens. Okay? But the invitation is to every subject. God has done this for you. God is inviting you to be his child, okay? And you know what that does? It doesn't just say we have a unity and you can experience it. It motivates us by saying we are unified in mission. We also have that in common. We carry the same message. And we carry the same calling and the same commission. And so, of course, we work shoulder to shoulder We say, why would I do this alone when we could do it together? And it is amazing, isn't it, in the New Testament how much it's emphasized not to do ministry alone? Jesus is like, hey, I've got 12 of you disciples, but go out in pairs. And then when we get to the book of Acts, God says to the church in Antioch, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. And even when they have a falling out, neither of them goes, I'm going my own way. But Paul takes Silas and Barnabas takes John Mark. In fact, as much as we think about Paul, Paul is never alone in the New Testament. He's got Timothy and Titus and Luke and all these people. He's always got a posse. And how many times in the New Testament does he say, my fellow workers, greet this woman and her husband who were fellow workers with me in the gospel. Okay. Do not think about evangelism in terms of individual responsibility. It is the calling of our community and it's to be done together. All right, that's plenty for this morning. There's much to reflect on there, but here is where I'd kind of like to land the plane for us this morning. Back where we began in verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Okay, One, we have a better understanding of what maintaining means. It means keeping these things central. It means keeping these things in mind it means protecting and preserving these things but to the word eager if this is what we have in common it's not a commonality of suffering it's not a commonality that we're hated by the same people let alone that we hate the same people but if this is what we have in common the god who has become father the lord who is also savior the spirit who empowers and gifts And enables the body who is here for one another, why would we not make it our life's mission to cultivate these relationships? Okay, let's pray. Father, we have to be frank, we have to be honest. The division that has torn our world apart has torn your church apart, and I wish it were different. I wish we could look around and see the church as the only one standing in solidarity with one another, but it's just not the case, and I know that that grieves you, and I also know that the things that divide really matter, and that many times they are not division in the body of Christ, but a forsaking of the body of Christ in the name of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the habits and the central recognition of these things that would be one because we are one and I pray as well Lord as you've brought our differences together that we would see those differences for what they are as gifts for the sake of the community and not distinctions that divide us and I pray finally Lord for those who are like I don't really know what my part, what my place is in the body of Christ. I I get the vision, but I think God may have forgot to send mine in the mail. I pray, Lord, that you would just, through the encouragement of those around them, reveal the gifts that you have given. By your Spirit. And I pray that you would gift us more. Paul told us to earnestly desire the best gifts. And we desire, Lord, to be a better functioning body both in our mission to the world and in our love for one another and our growth into the unity of the knowledge of Christ into the measure and stature of the fullness of maturity in Christ to grow up to the head. And for that, Lord, we need to be empowered and gifted. And we need to use those gifts in abundance. So I pray that you'd help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.